Hey guys, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Scroll with your weekly knock activism wrap up. Today we're going to be talking about one of Los Angeles' worst municipal codes getting an update to be somehow even worse than it previously was. Uh, we'll also be talking about some serious cops y'all updates and a quick update on the empty homes tax motion uh, that was introduced back in, in, uh, in City Hall back in June. Uh, how's it going, Bushido? Uh, it's going pretty well. It's a little bit weird of a day because like... I, I kind of like hopped onto the internet late this e this afternoon, and the first thing that I saw was a post from one of my friends about how Jared Leto is apparently running like a weird cult out in the like Caribbean, like on an island. Wait, what? Yeah, it's really, <laughs> oh, no. really, really He's creepy. He's going if full you, Epstein. Yeah, no, if you check the 30 Seconds to Mars like <laughs> Twitter, like they've got all of these weird uh -huh. cult-like photos and Jared Leto being like, I'm a cult leader. And you're like, wow, that's fucked up. But oh, God. what weirds me out about it is Jared Leto used to ride bikes with us in like the bike party scene. Uh, and he was widely huh. known for being a creepy guy. So uh, after winning a video music award by like, uh, basically appropriating all the cool stuff my friends and I did on bikes. Uh, he's, you know, turned even creepier. And I just found that weird. I was just like, this is one reason I will never regret living in LA because like nowhere else <laughs> in the world are you going to have random encounters like that where you're like, oh, that weird random creepy guy was actually yeah. a rock star. And now apparently he's won an Oscar and has decided to be even creepier. So, you know, it's a, a normal That's Thursday, fun. I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah, that that's uh, that is one of the joys of Los Angeles is you never know who you're going to meet and what they're going to become at some point down the line, and it is all over the map here. And so. on that <laughs> on that exact subject of you never know what somebody in LA is going to become, we know we've got a housing crisis. <laughs> we know we've got tens of thousands of people stuck out on the streets of Los Angeles and LA County, yep. and yes. City Council. Uh, has some options. Like, they could house everyone. They could treat they everyone could. with dignity and respect. I mean, they could give they everyone could. the services that they need to take care of themselves and, like, access the help yeah. that they could. Or yep. they could just criminalize everything. And apparently, they have yep. taken the latter option. So let's talk about that. the uh, revisions they're looking at to Municipal Code 41.18. Exactly. So uh, for anyone who isn't familiar, Municipal Code 4118 is basically the uh, sit-lie ordinance relating to blocking sidewalks. So under 4118, you cannot block sidewalks by sitting down on them. Uh, you cannot be laying down on them. Anything that would prohibit the free flow of pedestrians is against the law. So uh, it's difficult to really get into too much of the nitty gritty here without being totally overwhelming because there have been multiple lawsuits that are involved in the enforcement of 4118. And one of the, uh, it's the Boise versus I forget who, uh, case that basically determined that you need to be humane in your approach, uh, to how you enforce these kind of rules. And so, well, and I think specifically the I, I think specifically the Boise finding was that you can't um, be demanding that people not live on the street or not uh, camp in tents uh, if you don't Correct. have enough places for them to live. So it was essentially saying yes, you can't criminalize right. people for something where they don't have a way out. Yeah, that's right. So it, it's it's also the the other uh, it's also involved with fifty six eleven enforcement, which is uh, the one relating to bulky items and yeah. uh, people having their tents up on the sidewalks. And, and that was so, the one that was recently making headlines as the Mitchell decision, um, which the city correct. is attempting to 
uh, kind of like deal their way out of, but they're now being hit by a lawsuit by a bunch of NIMBY for folks who want them to keep enforcing 5611. Uh, but yeah, so <laughs> and we're another lawsuit as well. From yeah, so we're we're seeing others. a lot of action like <laughs> on all of these different yeah. like uh, municipal codes. Absolutely. So uh, let's just go ahead and just dig straight in from the LAist because they did a very good job summarizing what the proposed rule changes would be with the rewriting that LAMC uh, 4118 would get. This is working in coordination between city council and the uh, city attorney's office. Let's before we uh, so, before we hop into the details oh, though, we should flag yo. at the top that our absolute favorite favorite non FBI investigated. Uh, city council member is the mover behind this. Uh, Mitch O'Farrell is coming out of the yep. gate. Like, he hasn't done much at city council. He got straws banned, and now he's apparently trying to criminalize not having a home. So he's, he's really just, you know, really trying to, to win us over. And also one of, uh, one of the biggest fans of, uh, of homeless folks in L.A. City is also Nuri Martinez, who uh, was the second on this motion, just as a little bit of a tidbit for folks. Uh, yeah, they do not want to be helpful with homeless folks, apparently. So the uh, proposed prohibitions on sitting, sleeping, and lying in the new revamp of LAMC 4118 include within 10 feet of a driveway, driveway or building entrance. So this means that if you've got driveways that take up any amount of space on a residential street, uh, if there's only like 20 feet between the driveways, no one can be camping there. No one can be doing anything like that. And this, this is going to be a huge impact as far as where folks are able to set up their encampments and tents to you know seek shelter uh, across the entire city. I mean, I know that for sure, in even in Skid Row, it's going to be a huge issue because if you're creating a 10-foot buffer on every single driveway or building entrance, you're going to have a lot of areas where people who have, are already pretty concentrated are going to end up having to be more concentrated because of these limitations. Uh, another one that is actually probably the most uh, disastrous in terms of its longer-term impact is a restriction on sitting, sleeping, or lying anywhere within 500 feet of a park, school, or daycare center. So just as like a little bit of a context here, the entire beachfront in Venice is counted as a park. So you will not be able to lie, sit, or sleep anywhere near the beach in Venice if this is going to be properly enforced, which means I'm really wondering what they're going to do when it comes to people like hanging out near the boardwalk who like aren't homeless. Like what, what, what happens with the folks that are trying to, uh, you know, hawk their wares on the Venice boardwalk? Are they now going to be in violation of 4118? Well, the, the, the vendors on the boardwalk have to get permits. Like they're permitted by the city yeah, and like still that can't sit there. And no, I think well, a lot of them, a lot of them bring chairs. But the other question I've got here is like, it's always been an open secret in LA that if you like, want to sleep on the beach, you can. Yeah. Um, and I've done that several times after long bike rides when I was like, I don't want to ride all the way back to Mid-City. Uh, and now I'm kind of like, this is really going to ramp up profiling, you know, more than anything Absolutely. else. Because as you pointed out, like, you, when you're down in Venice, you can't really tell who lives in a house there and who doesn't just by seeing who's sitting or standing or, or lying down on the ground. So the cops are just yeah. going to pretty much pick on anyone that they're like, oh, you look like you're unhoused. Uh, and that's going to be an absolute nightmare because I can imagine that they're going to pick on the wrong person and get sued. 
Yeah. And so it's, it, this, this is all just a huge mess. Another really just completely screwed up one is here within, within 500 feet of a homeless shelter or homeless housing that's been opened since January 2018. So this was all of the bridge housing and any other yep. supportive housing or other affordable housing uh, project that's been part of this bridge home process uh, supported by Garcetti would uh, probably end up falling under this catch-all. Uh, it, it's it's just this falls within the it's it's a f- huge step up in terms of the enforcement of these uh, you know no no camping zones that have really been uh, propping up around every single um, bridge shelter that is being put in. Like right now, they have I forget if it's daily or if it's like multiple t- just multiple times a week. But there are sweeps that happen with sanitation and with the cops where they're patrolling around uh, the vicinity of these bridge shelters uh, already. But what this is saying now is that if these changes in forty one eighteen come into effect, they won't even like bother waiting to do the sweeps. They can just like cite you and potentially arrest you. Uh, straight up if they catch you just hanging out on the sidewalk there, even if you're not camping or anything else. So if you're in any any of the vicinity of these bridge shelters, uh, you would be totally un- unable to to camp. And what's really damaging with this is that a lot of these bridge shelters are going into, into areas where people have established themselves and their encampment. It's these neighborhoods where people feel safe because they know the community, they know their neighbors, they know what resources are available to them. And now suddenly they're going to be cut off from that because they're going to be pushed out of the way based on the fact that they, you know, there's a bridge shelter that came in within 500 feet of them, which I'm sure is something that the the local businesses are, are being tempted with as like a furthering of that carrot and stick mentality of, hey, let us build a bridge shelter here. If you do, then we'll come in with extra enforcement. This is just, you know, cranking that extra enforcement up to 11 when well, it was we already, already being extremely prohibitive. And we already know that LAPD is spending about twice as much on enforcement around br- oh, like yeah. the, the bridge shelters now as they are it's on actually running money. the bridge shelters. So this what, seems like it's just going to per officer per month. It's insane. And this is just going to bloat their budget even more because as they get more bridge shelters built, it's like, oh, well, well, now we have to task like another six officers throughout the day to enforce 4118 around this new bridge shelter. Like this is just the the police state expanding exponentially. Absolutely. So uh, another one here, we've got a bunch to kill through. This is really getting extremely depressing the further we go. Uh, You would not be able to sit, sleep or lie anywhere that includes... Uh, a violation of the free passage of someone in a wheelchair pursuant to the ADA, uh, Americans with Disabilities Act, which is totally fair. Like if you are blocking a sidewalk from somebody who's in a wheelchair from making it through, that is a completely legitimate reason to say, hey, you need to move. Uh, there was an incident with the folks who were camped out near Echo Park uh, who had made very, like there are pictures that uh, Streetwatch and I believe Jed Perriott from DSA um, in particular posted that document clearly that the sidewalks were being maintained in full ADA compliance uh, with all of these tents set up on the side of the, of the road. And there, it, it was a very, it was like an incredibly clean section of the streets, much cleaner than most of the streets in downtown with all of these tents set up alongside it. And it was a very clear, like th- a solid three feet of, um, uh, or more of clear space on the sidewalk for anyone in a wheelchair to get through. 
But the uh, LAPD and sanitation didn't care and confiscated everyone's tents anyways in preparation for the Echo Park Rising event. And that sort of stuff happens all the time where, like, the police see a large tent and demand that it be moved. Or when the, the crews show up to sweep and clean, we'll say, oh, this tent is blocking access when it's clearly not. Like, this, yeah. uh, the ADA thing is already abused by the police, and this really just makes it, like, that much easier to weaponize. Yep. Yeah. And then so another place where you're not able to lie, sit, or sleep is uh, on any bike path. Um, which, I mean, I can kind of understand the, the concern about uh, bikes moving quickly, not seeing someone, and causing injuries. Um, another one is in or upon any tunnel, bridge, or pedestrian subway that is on a city-designated school route. So this one is, uh, I believe, would the, so that bridge would include any, any of these uh, overpasses, which are some of the most prominent locations that folks are using to to actually get shelter from the elements here in LA because you know whenever it rains in LA it pours and when it's hot and sunny it is extremely hot and sunny and one of the only places where there is solid shade that you can rely upon is underneath these freeway overpasses and other bridges uh, and if it's going to be making it if they decide that any of these happen to be on a city-designated school route, then these these encampment locations can immediately become off-limits. Well, what's kind uh, of amazing is, to me about, about this one is mm -hmm. we're having the whole fight over the new Hyperion Bridge, which is like a school route. Kids are walking over the Hyperion Bridge to get to school, and the city of L.A. won't make it safe for kids to cross the street by slowing or calming traffic or taking away a lane and requiring drivers to slow down. Why would they do that? But now they're going to send people to jail for not having a home under the guise of, oh, we're protecting school children. And I feel like yeah. there was a really stupid banner that was hung up on Vermont that had this same sort of stupid talking point that criminalizing the homeless is the only way we can keep our school kids safe. Um, and so I'm really happy oh. to see the, the city of LA adopting just NIMBY talking points as a way to push their Thanks. policy forward. Yeah. Um, another one is on any public land with posted no trespassing signs and closing times, which is meant to target anyone who tries to camp in any of the parks. Um, mm -hmm. Whether they be state parks, city parks, county parks, whatever. If there's a park that has a uh, we close at sundown sign up, then there's no one, no one's going to be allowed to camp there at all. Um, further criminalizing anyone who's trying to have access to things like public bathrooms that exist in these parks. And then the final one uh, on LAist's list is on, quote, crowded public sidewalk areas and, quote, like those where street vending is outlawed or near large venues. So this one feels like it's directly related to the Olympics. So Well, and not just uh, the Olympics, but remember, Mitch is the one who got the special enforcement zone up in Hollywood oh, yeah. to stop all the, seat, the, the street vendors on Hollywood Boulevard down by the Chinese Theater and like the kind of like tourist district with the, the Walk of Fame. Um, and so Mitch clearly has like the folks he wants to go after who are working class street vendors and people who don't have a home. Yeah, it's uh, extremely screwed up and extremely depressing that this is what's going on. So uh, LAist also spoke with a couple of uh, activists that uh, I am personally familiar with, and I'm thrilled to see that they're getting some uh, very solid and extremely descriptive and accurate quotes out there into the media. Uh, so Peggy Lee Kennedy, who is a homeless advocate from Venice, explained that one of the most immediate and damaging impacts on the homeless is going to be, quote, if you're living outside, nobody is going to let you use their bathroom. So if you have have to go to a park 
or so you have to go to a park. If you can't be within 500 feet of a park, that means you're going to have to go 500 feet to pee or poop. That is not a short distance, especially for folks who are often like mobility impaired, uh, often elderly, uh, and it means that they're having to leave their belongings unprotected and unsupervised for longer periods of time just to you know obey the call of, call of nature when it comes to early morning or late night or generally any time of day instances where you know you've got to deal with your bowel or you got to deal with yeah. your bladder like something that it all is humans absurd. have to do yeah and it's, it's, that, it's well aside from the guy that does the soilant but you know yeah we can get well no it's it's <laughs> <laughs> well i was gonna say also just like doing some real quick like back of the napkin math without a, a napkin you know a, a, a football field is a hundred yards which is about 300 is 600 feet. feet so you're sorry, going yeah, 300 feet <laughs> yeah so you're going almost two football fields to have to use a restroom. Oh, my and God. And that's it, kind of insane, especially when we know that, like, the incidence of illness and especially chronic illness are a lot higher among people who don't have housing because it's a lot easier to get sick and stay sick out there. So, like, this yeah, is really and, just, and like, kicking people, people weather down. Yeah. Absolutely. And people having to hold it is, is a great way to uh, encourage bladder infections and other issues that are associated with, you know, prolonging the time period between when you, you relieve yourself. Like, it is... This is absolutely furthering the public health crisis that is associated with our homelessness epidemic here in Los Angeles. This is not going to make the situation better for anyone other than the extremely vocal folks, uh, particularly in Venice, who if you Google around with like 4118 in Venice, uh, 41.18, uh, if you search for that, you will find some extremely... Uh, disconcerting motions that came out of like the Venice Neighborhood Council uh. Uh, and, and letters that have been proposed talking about demanding that LAPD actually enforce these rules. And, you know, despite the, the, the lawsuits that have been brought against them, they're like, we demand equal and fair access to all of the sidewalks, but don't want to give any help to the homeless. Really, they say they, well, say no, they I, want to make was- reasonable... There was that Argonaut editorial that came out a little while ago that was like in defense of the people putting down planters. And they're like, oh, these are just frustrated normal humans that don't know what else to do. They have to put down the planters (sighs) and displace these people because they don't know what else to do. And it's like your rich asshole like Venice homeowners and small business owners can, I don't know, fucking help. Like it's it's one of those things where you're like, I get that you're kind of frustrated with this problem. Everyone is. But I'm frustrated because 900 people died on the streets last year. And you're frustrated because you don't think that your walk from your Tesla to your small business is clean enough. Yeah. So uh, another quote here uh, came from Jed Perriott of DSA and the Services Not Sweeps Coalition. Um, and he had this to say, quote, this severely limits where you can camp legally, which is going to effectively create containment zones like Skid Row all over the city. And he's totally right. Like the when you start trying to map out the overlapping areas that are going to be covered by each of these various uh, subsections of 4118D, like it is going to just end up being absolutely absurd in terms of the restrictions on where you're able to go. This is very much ties in with what we were talking about with uh, sleeping in your car. We've got yep. these green zones and yellow zones and red zones, and they change often, and you don't really know where they're going to be at any given time. And now, when we're talking about 4118, this, you know, this restriction on where you can lay down or camp on the sidewalk, 
that's going to just further exacerbate the situation, which is going to further increase the stress, which is going to further increase the incidence of, you know, uh, potential violence between folks when, and altercations because everyone is already extremely stressed by the fact that, you know, they're, you're, you're living homeless on the streets of LA. And then you add on top of that, like the, all these gross limitations that are completely arbitrary in a lot of instances that are saying, nope, you cannot be here. You cannot be near these kinds of public facilities that would actually help you to get yourself out of this situation. No, you cannot be near that because we just decided that, no, you just, you, you can't be near a park. One of the things that really just uh, struck me uh, from 4118 is actually in section C, where they talk about uh, what oh, this you're like allowed to do. Yeah. And it creates this v- extremely ambiguous section, uh, uh, obviously targeting panhandlers. Yeah. So let me just read it directly. Quote, Approaching, following, or speaking to a person in a manner that is intended to or is likely to cause a reasonable person to A, fear bodily harm to oneself or another, or damage to or loss of property, which uh, we've seen what happens when the cops feel like there's bodily harm involved. Um, B, otherwise be intimidated into giving money or other thing of value, or C, responding immediately with a violent reaction because of the inherent nature of the reasonably perceived harm. When you start talking about reasonably perceived harm from people who are out there talking about vigilante justice up in the northwest sections of the San Fernando Valley, like I do not want to even think about what they consider to be reasonably perceived harm and the impacts that would have and the justifications that they'd be able to, you know, cobble together when it comes to assaulting the homeless when this when these kind of rules would be put into effect. Like this is absolutely terrifying to think about. Well, even beyond that, you have people who have lived in neighborhoods for, you know, 5, 10, 15. Some people have like been out on the streets for like 20 years and they're known to most of their neighbors. And then new people move in and don't know who they are and feel immediately threatened by them, whether they do anything or not. And like, you can go read next door. You can read any number of ridiculous NIMBY forms. Don't don't read next door. Do not read it. But you can just see people freaking out over having somebody ask them for money or maybe looking at them in a way that they feel uncomfortable with, or maybe somebody's having like a mental health episode, like all of those things are going to cause people who don't have a lot of compassion or understanding to freak out and call the cops and have somebody charged with like felony level offenses for just trying to survive. Like this one, I understand for a lot of people, like panhandling is kind of annoying. Uh, At the same time, I don't know what you expect these people to do. Um, other than like ask for what they need, but this like this whole part is really scary. And, and like you were saying, with the the vigilante justice groups that we know that are happening it's up in the valley terrifying. that are now cop yeah. free, but those groups have just written a letter to Michael Moore asking yeah. him to allow LAPD officers to participate in their violent vigilante groups again. Like, there are people out here who are looking for an excuse to harm the homeless. And at least one of the people mentioned in that knock article owns a security company Mm -hmm. that harasses the homeless. Like, that's what they do for a living. So, Bushido, they said that it was all just joking. Yeah, I know. And and threatening to tase a guy, (laughs) but then also having, like, armed security out there carrying tasers. It's... It's crazy. Um, and also that guy apparently has gotten obsessed with a ground game member. And that's a story we're not going to tell. Oh, yeah. It's no, weird. That, that's all kinds of stuff. It's weird up. and creepy. Um, but these are the kind of people who ugh. are currently setting the, the tone for the debate here. Like, for some reason, the, the violent vigilantes up in the valley, they have the ear of city council. 
the groups that are working on the ground. Extremely vocal, like Venice, Cole- Venice yeah. community stakeholder groups. Exactly. Like, it's just absurd. And it's surprisingly, all of these like people are generally wealthier-ish homeowners, which I'm sure has no connection Wait, to the fact that surprising? city council <laughs> listens to them. I just, you know, I, I can't see a connection there. But the groups that are working on the ground that are trying to like <laughs> push forward a way to actually deal with this crisis are being ignored, if not vilified. You know, Eric Garcetti's main problem with like homeless advocates right now is that they sue over the dignity of other human beings too much. So, like, I don't think that this is going to have a lot of pushback in council. I think that's going to push, it's going to go all the way through, especially with John Lee there. Like, that's the one thing is with Lorraine Lundquist, we might have finally broken the stranglehold on these, like, 15 to zero votes or, you know, whatever number of city council members show up for a given vote, but all voting in lockstep. Like, we had a chance to break that. John Lee's not going to do that. John Lee gets money and is friends with the people who run these violent vigilante groups on Facebook. He is absolutely going to be happy to see this and see it like super enforced up in his end of the valley where a they don't have nearly as as large a unhoused population as the rest of the city but people are much keener to get rid of it by any means necessary even if that includes violence so i don't see city council reigning those like impulses in it all or getting ready to do the right thing which would be like build a place for everyone to live and then you can tell them to not be on the street now, obviously, L.A. County is a lot bigger than L.A. City is geography-wise and has about 20,000 more unhoused people. They're getting ready to do their whole right-to-shelter-slash-obligation-to-shelter thing. Ugh, yeah. And these are all just feeding into this like terrible cycle of sending people to jail because they're poor and then not understanding why that creates another cycle of poverty and why people get trapped and become like chronic offenders in this really absolutely yeah. stupid system. So one other thing worth noting is that when it comes to like the actual public feedback relating to this motion that is introducing these changes to 4118, I actually went through and looked at all of the public comment that was submitted electronically to the city on this issue. And I got to say, it's it's, uh, remarkable how the tide of comments uh, grew very quickly from uh, the 17th of August until the 21st of August when this, this hearing was held. Uh, this first hearing was held, the, you know, went from having two comments to six comments to 13 comments to 16 comments to 26 comments over those couple of days. And the tide of uh, NIMBY versus, you know, people who are empathetic human beings and have a soul for the homeless uh, went shifted dramatically Mm -hmm. uh, to the point where there was only one NIMBY comment on the 21st and there were 25 folks saying that we need to repeal 4118 and stop criminalizing the homeless. One, one thing we found out through Michael Kohlhaas's reporting is that at least Paul Koretz, and I suspect probably most of the other council offices, don't actually keep a tally on what comments oh, yeah. come in saying what. So what they've basically telegraphed well, to us is I like... I took a tally for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying is they basically let us know that like these electronic comments, even though they solicit them, they're not actually don't looking at matter. them. So like you have to yeah. show up and yell at them because they're not going to get to inbox zero. And we promise you that there were a whole bunch of people who showed up and were yelling at them about this and demanding that they repeal 4118 and stop criminalizing the homeless because I know the folks that were there. Um, But when you look at the electronic comments, there were 27 people who were in favor of uh, strengthening 4118 and allowing the cops to be more, shall we say, uh, 
prolific in their application of force to enforce these rules. But there were 36 people who came in and said that we need to dismantle 4118 or repeal it uh, and generally to stop uh, criminalizing being homeless. Another fun fact here is that by looking through the comments, the number of comments that were literally copy-paste with no name associated with it um, from the NIMBY perspective uh, was incredibly high. I, I would say of the 27 comments, at least like 10 of them were identical comments. Most of those 10 were with no name attached. And one of them, it was really fun. They actually just submitted the, the URL from the Venice stakeholders website <laughs> that was directing them to file these comments rather than actually copying the content of the comment itself. They just put the URL in and that was their comment. So Boomerific. Uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing. So anyway, the, the, the point here is that uh, 4118 is uh, fucking horrific and it needs to go. And there are still going to be a number of hearings that are going to be held talking about this issue. And we will keep you involved and uh, informed on these, uh, rather keep you informed so that you can be involved in these discussions because this is incredibly important. It is immediately impactful on the, on the day-to-day lives of our unhoused neighbors, and it needs to be stopped. Mitch O'Farrell should not be allowed to just wantonly throw around this kind of absolutely ridiculously criminalizing uh, motion and and changes to the law that without having to suffer any repercussions, he needs to be held accountable. He needs to understand that he is doing the wrong thing, the vile thing, the completely anti, like anti-homeless, anti like empathetic thing that is just, uh, there's, there should be no place for this in a modern society. There should be no place for this anywhere where human beings are living together. This is absolutely vile and disgusting, and I, I, I struggle to come up with better words to describe this. I'm just so livid about yeah. what it is that O'Farrell is doing here. It's, it's stupid. No, it's, it's cynical, and it's ridiculous, and it's counterproductive. Ugh. The one silver lining that I can see here is that we recently had a bill signed by Governor Newsom that's supposed to rein in some of the use of force. So let's transition yeah. into uh, our discussion of cops. <sighs> cops, y'all. And we'll talk about uh, AB 392, which uh, started off really, really strong with the backing of groups like Black Lives Matter and the ACLU and other big like social justice groups and racial equity groups, uh, and then was watered down and watered down and eventually lost those endorsements. But it made it through. It got signed. So let's talk about what that means. Exactly. So AB 392 is also known as Stefan Clark's Law, and it will officially become the law of the land here in California come January 1st, 2020. The use of force charges, uh, changes rather, were signed into law by Governor Newsom on Monday, August 19th. So for a little bit of background for people who, who might have forgotten or were not paying attention to some of the biggest social upheaval in California in 2018, uh, Stefan Clark was shot by the Sacramento police in uh, the backyard of, I believe it was his grandmother's house, uh, because he was holding a phone and the cops thought that it was a gun, so they just killed him. Yep. Uh, his shooting was followed by weeks of protests and civil disobedience with his brother, Stevante Clark, famously disrupting the Sacramento City Council meetings, jumping up onto the dais at City Hall and chanting his brother's name, along with a number of other activists uh, and family members, and demanding that he be heard. Stefan Clark! 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 
Stavante. Y'all hear me? He's the mayor. Enough. Enough. Y'all got my Enough. Now, now, Enough. the mayor wants to talk to me. The chief of police got my brother killed. He Enough. doesn't care. He shows no emotion at all. At all. And y'all get mad at me for not crying Stavante. on the news. So Stevante Clark described this bill as being, quote, watered down. Everybody knows that. But at least we are getting something done. At least we are having the conversation now, end quote. And I mean, that that really speaks volumes to just how dire the situation is for the communities of color within California when it comes to police use of force. Like this bill is a big step forward, but it is such a half measure compared to what it could have been. And it's got to be celebrated, but at the same time, it's extraordinarily disheartening. Like, as you mentioned earlier, Bushido, uh, BLM had been a strong advocate. Black Lives Matter had been a strong advocate for this bill when it was first introduced, as had the ACLU. But they both ended up having to pull their endorsements from it because uh, despite the fact that the L.A. Times is still reporting the bill as being, quote, one of the toughest standards in the nation for when law enforcement officers can kill, end quote, uh, it, it was definitely watered down. Yeah. One of the things, uh, we'll just go into what, what watered it down first before we talk about what it actually does. The definition here of necessary force was removed from the bill. So that was one of the sticking points that the law enforcement uh, officers unions and other advocacy and lobbying groups uh, who come in there, which again, uh, law enforcement unions, the only bad unions out there, they did not want to have necessary force be defined within the bill. They also needed to have the language uh, that required for de-escalation of confrontations uh, also be removed. So instead of having de-escalations be like the de facto way that you deal with any kind of a confrontation, they said, no, you can't have that in the bill. Because if you have that in the bill, that's going to be holding us to too high of a standard. I, I do want to chime in real quick. So on the, the de-escalation, yeah. one of the defenses that the police union and uh, departments and police chiefs have been putting out is that they're already requiring de-escalation training within their departments or within their forces, and that's something that they're currently working on and moving so. forward on and that it didn't need to be in the law because it's already considered or <laughs> being considered best practices by police. As we'll talk about in a oh, second, what de-escalation means <laughs> in theory versus what it means in practice are two very different things. And we're definitely not seeing the pilot projects <sighs> that we're seeing in like Colorado where they have specially trained mental health response teams that go out to yeah. a lot of these calls rather than just sending out two guys in a squad car with guns. But we'll talk about that in a minute, but the the de-escalation thing, they're trying to, especially the police departments, are trying to like deflect the criticism from that by saying, oh, we're already training it. And it's like, well, if you're already training it, then you wouldn't mind being regulated to train it, right? Yeah, well, you say that, but that's not what they want. So uh, another thing that was removed from the law were the parts of the language that pertained to, quote, criminal negligence. Uh, of officers involved in the use of lethal force uh, in follow-up uh, investigations. So basically, the cops are still more or less immune to prosecution when it comes to uh, the way that they are handling any of these lethal confrontations. Uh, we but do I see occasionally that the use of force is found to be outside of the accepted code of conduct of the officers outside of uh, the the rules that have been established by the police force, and that did happen with Grishario Mack, but here in LA. But we, you know, we're still waiting to see any actual prosecution take place from that. 
Well, and it's also one where we now have two presidential candidates who have floated the idea of ending qualified immunity. Uh, and this would have been a step towards California, oh, at least yeah. pairing back qualified immunity. But uh, Julian Castro and Bernie Sanders have both said that they think the doctrine of qualified immunity needs to be revisited. Uh, California could have taken a huge step here in in doing that and beginning Led to pair way. that back. Could have. But they didn't. Uh, so mm-hmm. let's go ahead and talk about what this law actually does now that we've covered what it doesn't do. Yeah. So according to the L.A. Times, quote, the new language will nece- will require that law enforcement use deadly force only when, quote unquote, necessary, instead of the current wording of when it is, quote unquote, reasonable. In large urban law enforcement departments that already train for de-escalation and crisis intervention, day-to-day policing will probably not noticeably change. Mm, that's worrisome. Yeah, Continuing, that's, that's not a good sign. The law also prohibits... No. The law also prohibits police from firing on fleeing felons who don't pose an immediate danger. An update from California's original code that dates back to 1872. God. And also, (laughs) you know what? And and also just a few months too late to help the Vargas family. Like... Uh, no, a full year too late, but yes. Yeah. Uh, well, a year and, uh, year and four months because he was, uh, full blown, just shot in the back, what, 13 times, uh, by LA sheriff's deputies back at the beginning of August in 2018. So, uh, yeah, as, as you just mentioned this, like this is a huge step forward in changing the culture of policing here in California, but it really falls far short of where we had hoped it would land. And honestly, it cannot come quickly enough. It cannot deliver justice for the families of people who have already been, uh, frankly, executed by the police in the years leading up to this. Like, it is too little, too late, but it is definitely a step forward. So a uh, very mixed bag here as and, far as I'm concerned. And it, another thing AB 392 doesn't do that we would really need to, for, for this to have teeth is mandate the police be charged by district attorneys, which is something that oh, we're yeah. not going to see. Remember, charging police... Yet, like a third party involved. Yeah. yeah, no, exactly. Have an outside investigation. That would be... Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, oh. But but you know, for, for district attorneys like Jackie Lacey... That would only Lacey, be reasonable. Yeah, but for <laughs> j- district attorneys like Jackie Lacey, they still get to interpret this law and decide like what officers they charge yes. or not. And based on the glacial yeah. pace of charging officers with on-duty that shootings, where literally charged. one sheriff's deputy has been charged in a rather egregious shooting, but it took seven years for that to happen. Um, and he still hasn't gone to trial. So it'll be hard to see that without some like shuffling around of the people who are at the top of the the district attorney's offices all over the state that we're going to see a lot of charges coming out against police. Now, maybe this will be used as like an internal sort of like discipline thing where police are going to lose their job more easily. We're not, I I don't really know and I don't really trust that. So seeing where the, the rubber hits the road on this one is going to be interesting and I think is also like, I'm not holding my breath um, to see if this makes a lot of immediate impacts, um, especially when the police unions and the big departments like LAPD are coming out and saying, oh, well, we don't really have to change much of what we're doing now anyways. You know, we're still in compliance with the law even before it was passed. And that's a really terrible thing to hear with their body counts. Uh, and speaking of that, yeah. you know, let's, let's hop right into a case study really <sighs> quick because there was a shooting in Venice on uh, August 14th, and I remember seeing this one uh, pop up on Twitter and pop up on my Facebook um, almost in real time. Um, But let's talk about the shooting of John Penny. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so last Wednesday, August 14th, LAPD officers shot John Penny, 37, a homeless man who was apparently, quote, unquote, armed with a three-foot plank at the time that he was shot. 
uh, there has been some dispute disproportionate. Well, there's some dispute over whether or not he like had a Coke bottle in his hand or whether it was a three foot plank. Like the police are saying one thing, the people who saw the confrontation are saying (laughs) another thing. Um, So it's all very messy. But at the end of the day, a man who did not have a gun was shot three times by the cops in the in the driveway in which he was allowed to live. Exactly. So Jack Susser, a local homeowner, had given permission to Penny to camp on his driveway. Susser told KTLA the following day that he was, quote unquote, surprised by the officer's use of force against the man. He said that he tried to tell the police several times that John was on drugs, had been drinking and was agitated, but they just did not listen. Uh, quote, the sirens, the helicopter came from above flying very, very low End quote, Susser said, describing of the scene quote, of course, that's very nerve wracking to anyone. He later added that the, uh, there was escalating hostility between John and the police prior to the shooting, which doesn't surprise anyone. And yeah, calling in a helicopter does not seem like good de-escalation. <laughs> yeah. That seems like really no. bad de-escalation. And apparently also before, before the police shot him with guns, they shot him with a taser, which him. also seems yeah. like a terrible way to de-escalate a situation. Didn't they, I think they also shot a 40 millimeter uh, foam sabot round at him in order to try to uh, you know, decapa- incapacitate him. So this is another one of those, the, the quote unquote non-lethal, although I believe they're actually being referred to as less lethal because yeah, they less, do still sometimes yeah. kill people. Yeah, they're, they're definitely not <sighs> non-lethal, but they are less lethal. Yeah. They, they kill people slightly less. Yeah. So, uh, one of the, so what, what clued both of us into this event almost in real time? I mean, this was, we, we, I think we both heard about it like two or three hours after it happened. So that's pretty close to real time when it comes to these things. Uh, local Venice resident Ethan Buckner spread the word on Twitter following the shooting, tweeting, quote, John Penny, an unarmed black man, was just shot in my driveway by, by at LAPDHQ. My landlord knew him. He was harmless. We demand answers. Hashtag justice for John Penny, end quote. So this uh, then triggered a series of social media outreach that we were both participating in, including reaching out to the National Lawyers Guild and the LA Times to ensure that this event was not passed over by the media. Um, at this point in time, from what I understand, Penny is recovering from his non-life-threatening injuries after being shot three times, including in the leg, uh, and I forget where else he got shot, but he's facing up to three felonies related to this incident. So basically, so like, he's, he's not going to be fine. Yeah, no, he's and it's, it's also fine. one of those where, like, it's weird that you get shot three times and the cops are like, each one of those bullets is basically a felony. Um, it I mean, just, I don't think it's a one-to-one correlation. It just no, happens but to be that way in this it's case. It's just amazing know. to me it's, that you can get so shot by the cops and Jesus. they turn around and charge you. It, it, you know, I know it's not the same as Ferguson, but there was that famous story that came out yeah, about the, the guy who got charged with shirt. destruction of police property because two mm-hmm. cops beat the hell out of him and got his blood in on their custody. uniforms. And yeah, he and was in custody. Was damaging police property. Yeah, and just, Jesus you know, it, it just every time I hear stuff like this, it just flashes me back to that story. Uh, there was a, uh, a, a demonstration and press conference in front of LAPDHQ the other day. Uh, Black Lives Matter, White People yep. for Black Lives, yep. Posted it. Uh, John Penny's attorney was there talking about what the case is going to look like going forward and how he's recovering. Um, but this is definitely one that is creating a lot of media buzz and has a lot of people paying attention, especially because like we tend to think of Venice as you and I were just talking, and the the people who live and have like housing in Venice 
as like NIMBY, but I honestly believe that is just the loud, loud minority Absolutely. who actually feel oh, that 100%. way. 100%. The, the vast majority of people who live in Venice, who live in any neighborhood in LA that's impacted by the housing crisis, have sympathy and empathy and compassion for uh, their, their unhoused neighbors, but that really loud minority just doesn't have anything better to do with their time than create trouble and pick on people that they see as more vulnerable than they are. Um, and hopefully yeah. John Penny makes a speedy recovery. Hopefully all of this media attention forces LAPD and the DA's office to really, really think hard about whether they want to charge him with a felony because I'm sure people will be paying attention to that trial. Um, but it's all, all in all just a tragic and stupid story. And another one where like, I think we went, what, like all of two weeks without covering an LAPD shooting, and during those two weeks, I, I knew mean, there were shootings, and we just didn't have time to cover were. them. So it's just like, yeah. you know, it, LAPD's body count is down year over year. Like, I, I do want to give them credit there. Which Since Charlie Beck took over, LAPD shootings have gone way down. Like, there was a year, I think it was 2007, when they shot like 150 people and killed over 100 people in L.A. County. The, the total for people killed by police in L.A. County is less than half of that now. But LAPD well, and L.A. County Sheriff's Office are still the number one and number three deadliest police departments in the nation, even though they have cut their number of right. fatal shootings in half. Like, that is That's how much of a police so violence problem we have here. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's, it's really perturbing, you know, and it's... I really am getting sick and tired of watching like Villanueva and Michael Moore come out after every shooting and say every shooting's a tragedy. It's like you don't seem to be doing a whole lot to stop it. Like you're you're not yeah. really like and if anyone's in a position to make this not happen, it's you. And you just Yeah, and eh. one of the ways that people one of the ways that people can actually hold them to account for this uh, unfortunately happens when most people are at work or on their way to work. But every single Tuesday at 9:30 in the morning there is an LAPD Board of Commissioners hearing, uh, meeting rather, that is held uh, at the headquarters of the Los Angeles Police Department. And so that was where they had the press conference by Black Lives Matter, White People for Black Lives, and everyone involved that uh, showed up on Tuesday morning. That was where they held it. This is the corner of First Street and Main Street in downtown LA. The address is 100 West First Street. Zip code is 90012. Mm -hmm. uh, that is where all of this goes down every single Tuesday. So if you've got the time and you care about this stuff, come and show up. It's pretty terrifying the first, you know, every single time that you show up because you're literally in a room surrounded by armed guards that are all LAPD officers and they're all standing there staring at you. They pull out a camera if anything starts to get even a little bit unruly and they start recording everything that's happening and you're just being stared down by all of these armed officers just cordoning the entire room off and you're then able to shout at Michael Moore and at Steve Sobaroff, who is now no longer the president of the, of the commission um, but is still part of the board. Like there are these people who get to make the determination as to whether or not these uses of force are within, uh, within uh, the accepted code of the LAPD, if they're within the use of force guidelines, they get to make that determination. And yep. you can show up on Tuesday mornings and shout at them and tell them that they are not doing their damn job. They are not holding officers accountable when these uses of force are so egregious and so absolutely absurd that you see things like this where an unarmed homeless man who all of the neighbors around that were part that were around and were you know actively telling LAPD to stand down like this guy is having a mental health situation like 
they just don't listen and they bring in a freaking helicopter and the helicopter only serves to escalate the situation. Uh, no pun intended. It is just, if you want a way to get involved, that's a great way to do it. And this coming Tuesday, there is going to be a special presentation going on by the Stop LAPD Spying uh, Coalition. There's going to be a press conference that starts at 9 in the morning. Uh, if you want to participate in the press conference, get there at like 8.45. If you just want to watch, get there at 9. Uh, we're going to be talking about the predictive policing uh, programs that LAPD keeps trying to roll out. And groups like Stop LAPD Spying keep managing to beat back time and time again because these these programs are just absolutely absurd and completely beyond the pale when it comes to the policing of our communities that are already being over-policed in a lot of these circumstances, especially down in South LA, especially in areas like Skid Row. It is patently absurd what it is that these officers are doing, and these programs only serve to escalate that kind of a situation. Yeah. So if you want to come out and help us with that press conference, uh, again, that's at 9 in the morning, uh, 8.45 if you want to be there early to help, LAPD headquarters, 100 West 1st Street, 90012. And, and it's every Tuesday. There's yeah. no end of places to shout at the cops. And, and just to add something onto this before we move on, you know, these commissioners on the LAPD Board of Commissioner, they make $50 a meeting. $50 a meeting. That's how much commissioners on any city-appointed board make, which I kind of get is, like, you don't want the mayor appointing people to boards where they're making, like, six figures in a year and, like, you know, it's a pay-for-play type thing, whatever. But paying people $50 a meeting for weekly meetings means that you're only getting people These who can like afford to not too. work. Yeah. Steve Soboroff, he doesn't have to go to a day job because he's no. already got a ton <laughs> of money and his job is mainly being a board member. And I don't mean for LAPD. I mean for other corporations and nonprofits, like yeah, the people who sit on the board are wealthy folks who are removed from society and we expect them to be able to understand and sympathize with and grapple with the issues that people deal with every day and I think that's a fundamental problem that LA really has to look at that you know the original plans to like get these commissioners and the civilian boards of oversight in place have gone awry because the city always picks people who are friendly to their narrative and who can afford to not work a full-time job and shoulder these responsibilities. Um, it, it's not surprising to me that they rubber stamp what the mayor and the chief of police want because they're all friends together. They're all running in the same class together. They don't have a vested interest oh, yeah. in rocking the boat. You know, the, the mayor can dismiss them at any point that they want, so there's not even job security there. Oh, yeah. There's no like hearing those, or appeals process. They emails? basically serve at the leisure of the mayor. Absolutely. And you remember those emails back and forth between like uh, Chief Beck and uh, Steve Soboroff about their just joking, extraordinarily, extraordinarily cordial interactions relating to uh, some extremely serious issues that were being presented in front of the, the uh, Board of Commissioners. Like there's some incredible dirt out there on michaelcohost.org uh, that is extremely eye-opening when it comes to the relationship between these commissioners and the people that they're supposed to be regulating. Yep. It is just a fundamentally broken system. Uh, so again, if you can show up on a Tuesday morning, I know uh, almost everybody that listens to this has got to get to work, but if you got the time, come shout at the cops with us because the only way that any of this is going to change is if they hear earful after earful after earful and it's painful, it's difficult, it's extremely emotionally taxing. I got to tell you, I shook like a leaf the first time I had to get up there, uh, you know, and for an hour afterward, because it's frankly, it's intimidating as fuck. Yeah. 
You're standing yeah. there with like 20 armed guards around you, just all staring daggers at you when you're talking about stop killing black and brown folks, you fucking cops. Like, stop doing this. And yeah, yeah. Oh, Jesus. I mean, how would, anyway. you, how would you feel about the man who's like, take away this person's pension just because they murdered someone? I mean, really, Chris, have some sympathy for the cops. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> Anyways, there's a, to end on a little bit of note of levity, as inappropriate as it may be. Um, but yeah, the cops segment is just always depressing. And remember, they get $2 billion a year, so money well spent. Uh, let's talk uh, about also money that's not... that's definitely like... <laughs> two-thirds of this recording <laughs> yeah but let's let's talk about money not well spent right now where we have investors owning homes and uh here in in los angeles and not leasing them out for people to live in so uh, mike bonin's empty homes tax is uh coming up for a hearing i understand yeah, so we haven't fully confirmed this, uh, at least at the time of this recording, but the first hearing on the empty homes tax motion that was presented by Councilman Mike Bonin back in June is supposed to be taking place this coming Wednesday at 3 p.m. in the Housing Committee. So that hearing is going to be taking place in room 1010 at City Hall, mm-hmm. and you probably know where that is. That's at uh, First and Spring is technically kind of the address, but the entrance is on Main Street. That's where you got to go through security and all that to get in. Yep. Uh, come join us if you can. It will be great to actually hear them talking about taking a proactive step in terms of trying to uh, take care of the fact that we know there are a lot of empty homes and housing units around the city and the county that are simply not being utilized because the landlords think they can make more money by waiting for somebody else to come in. And so one of the things that I'm hoping is going to end up coming out of this is that if we can include a uh, a measure to, to... include uh, commercial spaces, this could be a huge, uh, you know, swelling, uh, groundswell of opportunity for the LA City Council to really try to combat like the, the, uh, the developer blight that's taking place in areas of downtown, like with uh, Jeff Palmer and the kind of bullshit architecture that he puts up where the ground floor is completely inhospitable to pedestrians and is therefore totally unleasable. At least maybe this might push him to actually have to drop the rents on those so that places can start coming in and you can actually start seeing local businesses popping up in these areas despite the inhospitable nature of the design when it comes to those buildings in particular. We're talking the Medici, the Orsini, uh, everything else that's got an Italian faux Renaissance name and theme going on with it in downtown LA and adjacent areas, especially down by USC. Yeah. Um, so again, that hearing is going to be on Wednesday at 3 p.m. in the housing committee. It's going to take place in room 1010 at City Hall. Uh, show up if you can. I know for sure that there are going to be a bunch of us there from Ground Game who will be present and will be speaking in support of the motion and trying to make it the strongest, best motion that we can uh, have to really try to rein in vacancy because having like overseas landlords that sit on property and only utilize it as like a pied-à-terre or as a speculative investment and for them, they don't really particularly care about whether or not anyone is living in it because the rent is inconsequential as far as the, you know, using it as a tax dodge or a a money laundering opportunity to try to get cash out from places like China or Russia or wherever else. Uh, These units sit empty. These buildings sit dark and the neighborhoods that they are in 
shrivel up and die. We see this time and time again in major cities around the world, and we need to stop that from happening and continuing to happen here in LA. Specifically, I'm thinking about like the metropolis and the ocean-wide uh, oceanwide plaza and these other mega developments that are coming in where they're supposed to be attracting all of this overseas investment and they're struggling to make that actually happen. Uh, we need to make sure that the, you know, the, the creation of these units, these elevations, artificial elevations of property values uh, through pure speculation that don't actually end up resulting in creating viable housing spaces like uh, these units, if they're sitting empty, that is that is one less house for somebody to live in in L.A. County. And we need to be making use of every single available housing unit that we have because we're in a massive shortage. And yep. it's just unconscionable to think that we can allow these speculative millionaires and billionaires to come in and just gamble with these assets that are the difference between life and death for many folks on the streets of LA, like we said. Well, and I think it's also one where like people, died people on the complain of LA that last laws year. like this are going to make it harder for private investors and for developers and other folks like that to like make a buck and like make their living in real estate. And from where I'm coming from, and I know this isn't going to be like Mike Bonin's stance or anyone who's in a position of power, but for where I'm coming from, that's the fucking point. Like if we're going to disentangle ourselves from this this privatized development and privatized ownership like rubric of development we have to make it harder and less uh, 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 less desirable to invest in real estate and suck up all the real estate in the city gentrify it and displace people anything we can do to make it harder on people to just own property and not rent it when we're in the middle of a housing crisis is good and we've seen from Vancouver that this can have an immediate effect now it's not going to solve the housing crisis there's this is you know only only a few thousand units across the city that will most likely be affected, but that's a few thousand people that will have a place to live or at least can have the option of renting something at market rate, which even if you're a person who's like working a normal job in LA, finding an apartment, finding a place to live that you can afford is incredibly, incredibly frustrating. All right, so now that we've we've tackled uh, empty homes and cops and terrible city ordinances, uh, we're going to have a, a moment of levity. Uh, for this week's reading series, I, I picked a really good one. Me fail English? That's impossible. Uh, so, one of our favorite authors, right? Yeah, so Charlie Kirk, who is the founder and president <laughs> of Turning Point USA. And Turning Point USA, uh, if you're familiar with the name or have never heard it before, just as a refresher, <laughs> they are the youth, and I put that in scare quotes, group of conservatives oh, yeah. that go and try and like get the liberal bias out of college campuses by doing things like dressing up in diapers and yep. whining, which was a weird <laughs> stunt that they pulled. Uh, other people that they're responsible for in the zeitgeist that we should never have to know about are Caitlin Bennett, uh, a.k.a. Kent State oh, Gun Girl. Rifle Girl. Yeah, she worked mm -hmm. for TPUSA uh, as a, an outreach organizer, I believe. Uh, and then Candace mm, Owens. That's right. Before Candace Owens oh, was with TPUSA, right. she was pretty left of center, kind of. Like, she was a little bit more of a pro progressive Democrat. Yeah, she was. You can find the old YouTube videos, but she's like, yeah, we should do oh, reparations. Man. We 
you should do this, that, and the other thing, and like oh, pretty like shit, normal really? leftist stuff. Well, because then she realized there's more money grifting the right. You know, her gotcha. career as a as a leftist like influencer didn't take off, and then she somehow ended up with Turning Point USA and is now like their kind of somehow. token <laughs> black woman that they send out to diffuse criticism that they're not, not racist. She absolutely fills that role. Yeah. Well, yeah, and and they they send her out to be like, hey, TP USA can't be racist. We have a black woman, and then you look at the videos yes. of young white TP USA organizers who are just dropping the N word like it's going out of style, talking about how they don't yeah. like people who aren't white how white people are the best and you're like I'm pretty sure you're all racist plus they keep having the scandal where they have to fire their organizers because like texts leak to the media where the organizers are just doing oh, yeah, all of fun. the racisms like it's happened multiple times across multiple platforms not just text messages uh, but also Instagram and I think a Snapchat video and basically like if there's a social media platform some TPUSA staffer is on there doing racism right now I guarantee it but for Charlie's latest magnum opus, he wrote a, an editorial for Newsweek, uh, or sorry, an opinion piece for Newsweek, entitled, A Sleeper Cell of Socialists Could Steal the 2020 Election and Finish Off America as We Know It. So, wow. starting off strong, uh, let's just go ahead and yeah. hop into it. Uh, so, first paragraph, <laughs> quote, a phenomenon unique to the American political experience is known as the Bradley effect, or synonymously, the Wilder effect. The Bradley label refers to the 1982 California okay. gubernatorial campaign where African-American Tom Bradley was pulling as the frontrunner, but ultimately lost. The Wilder counterpart happened in 1989, when African-American Douglas Wilder was narrowly defeated, uh, was narrowly elected governor of Virginia, despite pulling at a much higher margin. In these cases, the conclusion reached by some is that people will poll differently than they vote in order to appear more enlightened or politically correct. So, I don't have a whole oh, lot to say this on this one, before. other than, like, I always love it when an opinion piece starts off with like a Merriam-Webster's dictionary definition, like Merriam-Webster's defines blah, blah, blah as blah, blah, blah. And that's essentially what he just did. You know, like he didn't, like his first, his first paragraph and a half are basically just him like saying what words mean. So not too much to comment on there. Dropping down to the next one. Quote, in an America where Barack Obama pulled ahead and then won two national elections right in line with pre-election day polling, the Bradley effect holds perhaps less water today than it once did. No, uh, nevertheless, it makes some rational sense to think that in today's culturally charged America, for a variety of reasons, people may be highly reticent to reveal their preferences to pollsters who are perfect strangers. The so-called hidden Trump voters of 2016 serve as a primary case in point, which, again, the hidden Trump voter thing was a bullshit lie put out by the media to try and explain why Trump wasn't losing as much as they thought that he should have been losing by. Because even like Nate Silver and the rest of them showed the polling in the battleground states was pretty much in line with where Trump ended up on election day. Like there wasn't a hidden cohort of Trump voters out there saying not saying they're going to vote for Trump. Um, the media just didn't want to believe the polls that said he was going to win. And that's not something yeah. Charlie really deals with. He just more wants to pretend that there is this like hidden majority of it's white the people silent, out there. It's the silent majority, yeah, right? It's, the, there's it's, it's like, going back to Nixon's bullshit. There's millions of white people out there who really, like, at the their heart of hearts, are racist, but just don't want to admit to that in public. And it's kind of a weird statement for Charlie to be making to try and, like, prove himself to be the good guy um, when he's like, hey, the Bradley effect and the Wilder effect are both, like, negative things. Like, the Bradley effect shows that people don't 
live up to their potential necessarily or are willing to lie to make themselves feel better about themselves. Whereas like the Trump voter thing, eh, like people didn't really like Trump, but he kept winning elections and he kept being in line with the polls. So it's not really an analogous thing. But remember, Charlie here has to make it seem like white broomer voters who want to vote for Trump are an oppressed group. That's kind of his whole life mission. And if he doesn't have that kernel, then he loses the through line. Uh, on to the next paragraph. Quote, it is for this reason that it becomes very difficult to calculate and even more dangerous to ignore the potential impact of hidden socialist voters in the run-up to the 2020 election. <laughs> yep. Fear us. Well, it's also, here's the funny thing. is like the hidden socialist voter... Um, because like DSA is totally a thing and growing and people love saying I'm a socialist nowadays. So I don't know where he thinks we're hiding, but we're doing a terrible job of it. Uh, but he continues on in that paragraph quote, after traveling the country extensively, delivering speeches and otherwise interacting with people from all different backgrounds, which I'm just going to stop here and say that that last bit is very normal human speak like speech. Like that's how normal people talk about like meeting other people. If they're like, I interacted with a bunch of humans today. It was very joyful. <laughs> Continuing, quote, I can confirm that this hidden vote exists and it is not unsubstantial. Unfortunately, the only way that empirically derived hypothesis can be tested is on election day. And at that point, it will be too late for conservatives. Okay, so first off, saying empirically derived hypothesis is something that dumb people do to try and sound smarter. Like, that's all that Charlie yeah, Kirk is doing here. Yeah, that's a jargon thrown in there. Well, let, let's remember, Charlie Kirk hates liberals on college campuses, and he knows oh, how liberal college campuses are because he spent three semesters in community college. So yep. he clearly knows what the modern child is, or the modern college student is like and what they're thinking, and is totally three not... Semesters. And also, I don't know who these wow. socialists are that are talking to Charlie Kirk. Like, I don't know who he thinks he was talking to, but I don't think a lot of socialists are showing up for his speeches. Wait, didn't... Didn't didn't one of them? Uh, there's that great quip, great clip of that woman with like the Starbucks in her hand. Oh yeah, uh, dumping water on him. Is talking about no no no. She's talking about like wanting healthcare and because she has a soul. Uh, and then she asks about whether or not they all have brain worms. Was that with Turning Point? I feel like that was a Turning Point interview. Maybe I, I haven't seen that anyway, one, but that one's uh, that one sounds good. There's yeah, some great stuff. Well, it's the, fun. The it's, other thing these, I want to point out here is, is there was some leaked uh, ad data that came out of Facebook, out of Turning Point USA, USA's uh, Facebook uh, ad buys, and it turns out that like eighty percent of their audience is forty-five year old white males or older than that. So like when Charlie <laughs> Kirk is like selling this whole I talk to young people, he's just absolutely lying. TPUSA sells its brand to boomers and those are the only people buying it. It is white male boomers. Those yep. are the people who think Charlie Kirk is the voice of young people. But let, let's move on down the rest of the article real quick. So quote, but we can determine some sort of baseline. Let's refer to the Federal Election Commission data and the 2016 presidential election. Nationwide, Hillary Clinton won up the popular vote by a margin of 2,868,691 votes. Donald Trump won the Electoral College vote 304 to 227. The key to his Electoral College victory was in prevailing in hard-to-win states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Those states were the difference between making America great again and making America as we know it her memory. Or, sorry. Those states were the difference between making mm. America great again and making America as we know her a memory, which I like how America is now a her. Oh, come like, we've now personified on. it into a woman, which is cool, you know, and very, very normal stuff. Also, here's the fun thing when Definitely he says Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin, 
those are all like really hard to win states. What it is actually is that those states have an outsized role in the electoral college, especially Ohio. Yes. Um, so they their votes count for a lot more. So it's not that those states are hard to yeah. win. It's that we have this broken electoral college system that makes those states more valuable. Uh, he continues yes. on. In those four states, 19,437,399 votes were cast. Trump won 9 million... 496,565, and Hillary won 8,971,980, a margin of victory of only 520, uh, sorry, a margin of victory of only 524,585 votes. Uh, I don't know why he's putting all the exact numbers in here, but it's kind of weird. Uh, why? Yeah. Now, hold on. He says, but wait, you might say those numbers don't add up. That's right, because in those four states alone, 959,854 votes were cast for some candidate other than Trump or Clinton. Said another way, 183% more votes were cast for someone other than Trump or Clinton than the margin of victory between the two, more than enough to wipe it out. Okay, so what he's trying to set up here is that there's a bunch of people who voted for neither Trump nor Hillary that if they had voted for either the Democrat or the Republican would have swayed the election. And this is a weird one because, again, if these nearly one million people had wanted to vote for either of those candidates, they would have effing voted for them. He continues down to the next paragraph. Quote, now let's turn to the youth vote in 2016. According to civicyouth.org, approximately 50% or 24 million of eligible voters aged 18 to 29 voted in the 2016 election. 55% of those young people voted for Clinton. Having spent the entire election cycle on college campuses, I can assure you that Clinton was the least inspirational candidate the Democrats could have presented to that demographic that still has all of their hair. Which one, Charlie, go fuck yourself on that comment. <laughs> Two, yeah. as a balding man, I, I just, I'm, I'm going to get snarky on this. Um, but also, it's one where him saying, like, Hillary Clinton was the least inspirational candidate the Democrats had, uh, this is not, like, this isn't something Charlie Kirk discovered that was just literally what everyone no. said, including Hillary Clinton's yeah. backers. Uh, but he continues on, <laughs> uh, quote, for some evidence of this, consider that in 2008, a more youthful candidate with a far more progressive and inspirational message, Obama, received 66% of the same age group's vote with a higher turnout. Yeah, a good call, Charlie. People turn out to vote for candidates they want to vote for. This is genius. Charisma's a thing. Oh, my God. Uh, next paragraph. Quote, going back to 2016, Green Party candidate Jill Stein likely pay played a, a key role in helping elect Trump, but certainly not on purpose. No. Okay, this is <laughs> bullshit. 100%. Jill Stein could not Here have swayed the go. election. She didn't get enough votes in any state to sway those elections. So he says, quote, for those not familiar, the Green Party is, is the one that wants to take America back to the days before the discovery of making fire. Yeah, exactly. They're anarcho-primitives, uh, Charlie. I love how you literally are the dumbest <laughs> person on the planet. Uh, Wait, quote, somebody called, uh, there was somebody that was called a Mao. Oh, somebody referred to Bernie as a Maoist lately. And ah. I literally just wanted to smash my head into the desk. Like, I was like, what? The I mean, hell look, are when, you talking about? When you're when you're like Charlie and your understanding of words is X word is good, Y word is bad, you just deploy <laughs> the word that you want to use when you want to say this is good or this is bad. You never actually have to learn the content of the word, right? Like Why Mao bad, yeah. so I'll call Bernie a Maoist, even though Bernie isn't trying to lead like an agrarian insurrection against a, a feudal state. But 
before we get too deep into that, let's finish off this paragraph. So, uh, quote, Stein won more votes in Michigan and Wisconsin than Trump's margin of victory. No socialists who vote with their eyes open would ever choose to vote for Trump instead of Stein, but they would choose to vote for an openly socialist Democrat instead of wasting their vote on Stein. Which, this is a pretty, like, A, I don't think those numbers there are right. You know, I you don't actually think Hillary, that, that Stein yeah. won more votes than Trump's margin of yeah. victory in either of those two states. Also, Gary, Gary Johnson, Johnson was there. Did yeah. way better, way better than, uh, than Jill Stein did. Like, he could have swayed it's the like election for Hillary Clinton <laughs> had he done slightly better. Like, it's weird for him yeah. to pick Stein but not, uh, not pick on Gary Johnson. Uh, but also, it's this, he's falling into the same trap that I hear the people who, like, still play the, the Nader card fall into, which is, like, green oh, voters God. are just defective Democrat voters. Like, they would vote for a Democrat, but they're kind of broken. And they're not. They're Green Party voters. They're voting for the person that they want to vote for. And there are even a lot of people like me. I've never been a member of the Green Party. I'm not a huge fan of the Green Party. But in California, where our electoral college votes really don't count for that much, and it was a lock for Hillary, I voted for Stein. Uh, I would have written in Batman. I, it, it made no difference to me, right? Like, I was there to vote on the yeah. rest of the ballot. The presidential, the presidential yeah. election, I could care less about, especially when you live in a state like California or New York or Texas where you're losing electoral votes because you're too big. But... Yeah. Uh, let's, uh, let's continue on with Charlie here. So, quote, what all of this means for 2020 is that the growing national movement towards embracing socialism and collectivism could be awakening a sleeper cell of voters who are ready to unite the political Ooh. left and finish off America as we know it in 2020. So, yes. one, the whole sleeper cell of voters <laughs> thing, I think, is amazing um, because those are just people who don't vote regularly. Like, they're not like it's a the weaponized the cohort. It's the single largest voting block is the people that don't fucking vote like that's how it works that's why we saw even with like a record turnout in 2016 it was still like disappointing in terms of the turnout for Hillary was all of these people who just didn't bother showing up to vote or yep. what was it 90,000 voters in Michigan who looked at the ballot and said fuck you Hillary because you are not taking us seriously you do not care about what's going on in Flint you do not care what's going on in Detroit and they just they voted Democrat straight down the ballot and left the presidency blank yeah and there was a lot of people on both sides who, who left ballots blank I think in at least one state yeah. and this is me kind of reaching into the archives I'm not about to google this because I'm lazy but I think there's at least one state <laughs> where people who who voted uh, who left a blank on the, the presidential election could have swayed that election they could have swayed that state for either of these yeah. candidates and again like you said you know, know Michigan if the if we counted non-voters in presidential elections for like the last you know 20 years or so the president of this country would be no one because that's who's getting the most yep. effing votes and I don't mean that by like people show up and just like cast, you know, a ballot and then leave the presidential ticket blank. I mean, people who don't show up at all. Um, yeah. But continuing on, quote, as Joe Biden continues to self-destruct, thereby eliminating the only viable perceived as moderate, parentheses, he is not, and parentheses, candidate from the Democrat field. <laughs> Yeah, so Joe Biden is not a moderate. He's also from the Democrat field. Like, this is another thing that the conservatives have done that I really hate, and they did it on purpose because Democrat is a very hard sound. You know, Democrat, like, people have a visceral negative reaction to that word okay. um, versus yeah. Democratic, which is a softer end to that word. And so the conservatives a while ago were like, oh, it's not, you know, it's the Republican Party and the Democrat Party. And it's like, 
wouldn't it be the Democrat Party and the Republic Party? Like, what? Why is it a Republican? Yeah. But a, I'm confused. Mm -hmm. Um, but so yeah. he, he's just kind of playing that. Also pr trying to pretend that, that Joe Biden is on the left is just amazingly stupid, especially when Joe it's, Biden represents, yeah. you know, Delaware, where a lot of Charlie Kirk's found, uh, funders hide their money from taxes. Like you would think oh, that he yeah. would be on board with Joe Biden, who makes sure that his wealthy billionaire dark money funders can continue to hide their money from the rest of us. But, well, no, because then he wouldn't be able to continue his grift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to get that money from the boomers, Charlie. I, I get it. I get it. Uh, but he continues, quote, it is becoming increasingly likely that the Democrats will nominate a far left candidate openly hostile to our founding yeah. principles, especially the control Wait, of private what? property. This will have appeal to voters who in 2016 were uninspired and stayed home, voted for non-viable candidates and have recently been, quote, woke. So, yeah, um, seeing as all of the the candidates running have said that they think private property should continue to exist. Um, all of their plans involve the private sector and the free market. Uh, he's clearly on the correct path here, thinking that like Kamala is going to do away with private property like day one in office. Um, it's also one, <laughs> it's also one, and this is the part that gets really weird is like when he says that, you know, what's going to swing this election for Democrats is that people are going to be pulled out by um, a, a super left candidate when the big problem with like Hillary Clinton back in the day was that she didn't really speak to centrists um, is going to be an interesting one. Like we still haven't gone into the primaries yet. So I think that any, you know, prognostications about who is going to come out on top or not is just scaremongering stupidity. But uh, moving For down sure. to his last his well, last couple of paragraphs you know, here. Bernie is going to win. So yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, quote, this is why, even if you are a reluctant Trump voter, it is important to work tirelessly on behalf of the president to get him reelected in 2020. No, His reelection no. strategy cannot be about holding on to voters in swing states, but increasing the number of voters in those states. It is quite likely that the opposition is going to add to their numbers, and our margins were too razor thin to prevail against a swell. No status quo oh, hey, was established so in 2016. And you know what? He's kind of right. That a status quo as far as like Trump goes and like being a shoe in for the next election wasn't established yeah. in 2016. Um, the rest of it is actually kind of scary, um, especially considering that Third Way, like a major Democratic think tank, came out and said, Hey, we don't want to turn out the vote strategy. That's not proven to win. So the fact that like conservatives <laughs> like Charlie Kirk see the writing on the wall and understand that Trump loses if more people and show Third up to Way the polls, yeah. he's yeah. like, He's taking kind of the other side of the Republican strategy because like 60% of Republican strategy is make it impossible for someone to vote. And then the other 40% is make sure that your angry racist boomer cohort definitely turns out. Yeah. Um, and so he's kind of on to something here. So I'm going to give him some points for that. Last two paragraphs. Quote, one thing that could work in Trump's favor is a sort of reversed Bradley Walder, of, or, sorry, one thing that could work in Trump's favor is a sort of reverse Bradley Wilder effect. The president has done more to improve conditions in America for both African Americans and Hispanics. These communities know it is the president's policies that have brightened their economic circumstances, even if it may not be super popular to, to voice, the, voice this publicly among neighbors, coworkers, and family. And I'm trying to stop myself from laughing there um, because he's just I'm repeating at a loss Trump for lies. Words. 
He's just repeating like, Trump's lie. That, what like, the fuck is well, he thinking? Well, because he keeps saying, hey, look, African-American unemployment is the lowest it's ever been, except that like our unemployment lumber, uh, number is uh, absolute uh, bullshit lie because everyone's working in the gig yeah. economy now. Like unemployment yeah. isn't three and a half percent. It's, you know, it's a lot of the job, like the job I just got doing part time, they had yeah. like 200 people apply for six positions. Uh, the economy is not doing great and it sucks more if you're not a white person. But uh, continuing down to his last paragraph, quote, conservatives are hoping that they remember on election day that their ballots are both secret and important. We need them to help counteract the socialists of the country uniting in their attempt to begin phase two of what Obama termed the fundamental transformation of America. <laughs> so yeah, so basically Charlie uh, Kirk's, wait, Charlie Kirk's plan here up, is but to also get, B, what the fuck is he talking about? So Charlie Kirk's plan here is uh, to get black and brown Trump voters to turn out because they need to know that they'll be safe and secure in Donald Trump's new fascist America, um, which ain't going to effing happen. You know, like Candace Owens plays the same grift. And like, they're right. The Democrats haven't been great to African-Americans and haven't been great no. to the Latinx community. They haven't been great to the indigenous yeah. community or the Chicanx community. No. Like, they're 100% exactly. right about that. The solution is not the GOP. Like, the solution is not the party that's like, yo, we're going to throw your ass in jail and make sure you're a citizen because you look too brown. People don't and thank we'll you even, with their they'll vote even deport for doing them when that. they are citizens. Oh, Jesus. yeah. Yeah, they'll do that too. They'll deport your ass just because you don't look white enough. So Charlie's counting on uh, like this groundswell of minority voters to show up and be secret Trump voters. And this has been a weird, strange trip through the mind of Charlie Kirk, where he started off with white voters will pretend to be less racist than they actually are and hoping that voters of color will be more racist than anyone thinks they are. Like that's the trip that we've taken here. Remember the Bradley and the Wilder effect are particularly about white voters voting for black politicians. It's specifically saying that people find racism unpalatable in the public square, so people tend to hide it, and then when they go into the ballot booth, they actually vote their conscience, which is different from than the which is different than the conscience that they let on uh, publicly. He's hoping that the opposite is going to happen here among African Americans and Hispanic voters, and I just, for the life of me, wish him the best of luck trying to pull that one off. Like, I really think that in any major urban center that is seeing a housing crisis and police violence crisis and debt crises, um, which is every major city in America, I'm, I'm, that's not even yeah. a small selection that I just no. described, that voters there that are already economically suffering and marginalized because of their race are going to think that the angry, anti-Semitic, racist, proto-fascist who's sitting in the White House is the guy that's got their back. Um, yeah, yeah I, good I luck with that, Charlie. Um, please, you know, go down to Inglewood and let them know that you think they should vote for <laughs> Donald Trump. Like, Have fun with that. <laughs> yeah, go, go down to South L.A. and be like, hey, I know that the police just shot a bunch of people down here, but have you thought about voting for the guy who thinks that cops <laughs> should be able to shoot you more? <laughs> and wants them to smash your head into the cop car as they put you in the backseat? Yeah. Hey, Highland Park. I know that you mo that you mainly speak Spanish down here. Do you want to mm -hmm. vote for the guy who's willing to send your family members to indefinite detention because they're trying to cross a border? Because that's the guy you should vote for. I mean, fuck, I'm just trying to imagine what these door knocks would look like. You know, I just... 
I, I just, I can't. And just the, the Foster the People, the song, or the Foster the People song comes to my mind. Like all the other kids in their pumped up kicks better run, better run faster than my bullets. Um, because this is not going to be an easy sell for Charlie. Like any of the, the neighborhoods that he's trying to talk to or that he would actually get for this turnout would be completely unfriendly to him, which again is the great conceit of this article. And this is what I want to come back to as I tie this off. Charlie Kirk isn't speaking to minorities. He's speaking to no. middle-aged white male boomers. He is telling yes, them yes. that it's going to be okay because secretly their, back, their black friend actually Everyone has is their just back. Everyone as racist as them. Yeah. That, that it's okay Jesus for them Christ. to feel racist and angry and, and think fascism is good because when it comes down to it, all of their friends that look at them with the side eye secretly feel the same way and just need the bravery to be able to express that. So this has been uh, a long-ish strange trip through Charlie Kirk's very, very broken brain. Um, I really can't wait till we find out who actually funds TPUSA just so we can like send copies of this to them and be like, you paid for this. You paid for this. You paid for this. Like I, I'm thinking about printing out every third way tweet and sending it to the Koch brothers and be like, look at the ratio you paid for. But uh, anyway, so that that wraps up our reading group. Let's uh, we got some events on the calendar uh, as we're rounding this out, and we before do. we get get too uh, too deep into the the timeline here. So uh, first off, I'm going to be heading up to San Francisco this weekend. Um, we're recording this Hell Thursday, yeah. releasing it Friday. So uh, by the time y'all hear this, I will be on a jet plane up to San Francisco for the Sunrise West Coast Summit. Uh, in case you missed the news, Thursday the uh, Resolutions Committee, one of the DNC committees, had a vote on whether or not to take up having a climate debate as a resolution before the full body. Uh, they voted against it because they are cowards. Uh, Sunrise disrupted the event. Um, there was a lot of people there. They packed the house. R.L. Miller was there. She was on a live stream last night basically saying that yeah. they knew they were going to lose this vote. But Saturday is going to be a lot of big action. So keep your eye on San Francisco on Friday and Saturday as we give the DNC some hell. Yeah, uh, I'm going to be up there training Sunrisers on grassroots fundraising and all sorts of other fun stuff, and apparently staying at an urban farm in Berkeley. So I'm actually looking really, for, really looking forward to that one. Um, but you've nice. also got some big stuff going down uh, here in L.A. So what's going on with that? Yeah, so we've got a Hold the Sheriff Accountable forum that we've spoken about a couple of times here that's happening from 1 till 3.30 p.m. Uh, this Saturday of the 24th, at Emmanuel Presbyterianist at 3300 Wilshire Boulevard on the corner of Barendo and Wilshire in Koreatown. It's just two blocks away from the Wilshire, Vermont subway station. Uh, come on out. We're going to be talking about what has been happening with the sheriff's department in terms of the sheriff himself uh, lying through his teeth about making all these promises in order to get elected and get the endorsement of the Democratic Party clubs uh, across Los Angeles County uh, and then betraying that trust. Uh, you know, he's been telling us that he's not cooperating with ICE, but yet he still continues to hand uh, prisoners off as they're being discharged to ICE contractors right outside of the jails. And there's really just fundamentally no accountability when it comes to sheriff's deputies full out executing folks uh, like Ryan Twyman, like Anthony Vargas, like all of these folks who have been the victims of state violence at the hands of deputies. We are going to be talking about what has happened in those cases. We're going to be hearing the stories from the, the families, from the victims' families themselves. Uh, and we're going to be talking about what it is that we can do about it to hold him and his deputies accountable. So come on out. Again, that's going to be on Saturday from 1 till 3.30 p.m. at Emmanuel Presbyterian at 3300 Wilshire Boulevard 
in Koreatown. Um, following immediately following that, K Town for All is going to be doing our weekly outreach uh, to go distribute supplies. Uh, you know, hygiene supplies, hygiene kits, uh, bottles, water, some baked goods that seem to keep getting donated to us on a pretty consistent basis, which is freaking awesome. Because uh, you've never seen somebody's li- eyes light up a- a- until you've seen uh, people being like, oh my God, you've got free pastries for us? That sounds fantastic. Um, it's it's incredibly inspirational and it's a really great way to be able to give back to the community. Come on out for that. That's going to be happening at 3.30 this week because of the Sheriff Accountability form uh it's actually happening at the exact same location so you get a two for one if you show up at one (laughs) Um, and then also there are going to be two upcoming los angeles tenants union local meetings coming up next week the hollywood local is going to be meeting on tuesday august 26th from 7 to 9 p.m at 6500 sunset boulevard 90028 again that is the Hollywood local of the Los Angeles Tenant Union, and they're meeting at Tuesday on August 26th from 7 to 9 p.m. at 6500 Sunset Boulevard, 90028. The Northeast local, which is up in the Highland Park area, will be meeting on Thursday, August 28th from 7 to 9 p.m. at Avenue 50 Studio, at located at 131 North Avenue 50, 90042. Again, that's the Northeast local on Thursday, August 28th from 7 to 9 p.m. Avenue 50 Studio, 131 North Avenue 590042. Nice. Sounds like some good power building. Uh, all right. Well, Absolutely. Let's, uh, yeah. Let's, uh, let's head to the outro. Yeah. So as always, if you guys have any events that you want us to publicize, take part in, or generally be made aware of, please visit our website at www.groundgamela.org or visit our Facebook page and send us a message there or send an email on over to podcast at groundgamela.org. And I'm just realizing that there's been a typo in that for months and I haven't fixed it. Um, And yeah, so go ahead and uh, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, We would love to publicize your events if things are going on. Uh, We want to help. This movement is all about us. Uh, not any one of us, but the collective us. So yeah, just get on out there, be angry, keep fighting and make change happen. Yeah, no. And, uh, thank you all for uh, riding along with us. I, I thought we were going to keep this one a little bit shorter, but we keep failing to do so, <laughs> but, uh, hopefully you all are finding it entertaining. Uh, anyways, thank you much for taking this ride with us as always. Remember rise up, fuck that shit.
Sunny Bumble, Sunny Bumble, Sunny Bumble, Sunny Bumble.